Let's pray real quick. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. I ask you, Lord, to anoint me by your spirit today to minister to the people. We pray for open hearts and minds and something that will transform our consciousness, our hearts, and help us to experience you in greater ways. In Jesus' name, amen. How's everybody feeling? So I want to... Let's see, where do I want to start this? Yeah, let's start it here. Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 12. Verse 6. You can just listen if you can't find it. He says, remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well. Then... Pay attention to this verse. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. So in Ecclesiastes, you have, in verse 6, metaphors for death. The silver cord being loosed, the golden bowl being broken, perhaps talking about life in the spinal cord or something. But anyway, they're metaphors. For the end of your life. Remember your creator before you die. <laughs> but then it says something interesting about what happens when the person dies. It says that the body returns to the dust, right? Returns to the earth. And the spirit returns to its source or returns to God who gave it. So is Joseph Garlington, uh, some of you may be familiar with his name, was the first person I ever heard use this expression. He didn't originate it, and I can't remember. You, you try to find this stuff on the Internet, and it gets attributed to several different people who originally said this quote. But he's the first person I heard say this. He said, we are not hum- human beings trying to have a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. And this verse kind of brings that out, that we, that our spirit originates and comes from God and will return to God, while our bodies come from the earth, right, come from the ground or sustained by the ground and will return to the dust, right? <clears throat> now, one of the most fruitful things I've done in the last couple of years is take a look at the history of Christianity, the history of the church, and how certain doctrines and teachings developed throughout Christianity. I heard a scholar by the name of Elaine Pagels talking uh, about a year ago. She ended up going to one of the Ivy League schools. I can't remember if it was Princeton or Harvard or one of those, but she was working on her Ph.D. at an Ivy League school during the 70s, and she was working with some of the scholars who were in the process of translating some of the works from what's known as the Nag Hammadi Library. Now, if you don't know what the Nag Hammadi Library is, um, it's a very interesting story. Around uh, the mid-1940s, there was a uh, uh, some Bedouins who found, uh, it's very similar to the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which you can go see up at the Denver Museum if you want to, through September. We went and did that a few weeks ago. Kids loved Casa Bonita. Made up for dad's nerd factor sitting there looking at old scrolls while they were dying for food or entertainment or something. But anyway, uh, it's very similar to the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls in that it was found by local people who did not know that they had found ancient manuscripts. Make a long story short, what it was, was during about the 4th or 5th century, the bishops that were empowered in Rome 
sent out decrees to all of the bishops of cities and towns demanding that certain works that were being circulated as Christian teachings be destroyed. And this involved other gospels. It involved things of spiritual practices, things of this nature. And in this particular part of the world where the Nag Hammadi Library was found is the place where the Desert Fathers in about the third century um, settled and built monastic communities or communities that were dedicated and devoted to finding and experiencing union with God. So what they did was they stored these manuscripts inside of these pots and they buried them and hid them so that when whoever was enforcing the decree that had come from the Vatican would not be able to destroy those works so that they wouldn't be lost forever. But they were lost (laughs) for two centuries. So back to Elaine Pagels. She's the scholar who's working, and she's working under people who are translating the various works from the Nag Hammadi Library, which included a lot of information about Christianity within the first couple of centuries. Everybody tracking with me? And it was funny to hear her talk because I was under the same delusion. (laughs) <laughs> she said that she was just sure that, that, you know, Christianity today is such a hodgepodge and it's so confusing because there's so many different denominations and so many different people that teach different things. And how do you know which one's right? And if we can get closer to the origin or closer to the source of the information, then we'll be able to just discover what is the pure teaching of Christ? What is the pure teachings of the church, right? And so she thought, I'm going to go and I'm going to discover this pure pristine Christianity that was in the first century. And she said the more that she studied and looked at first century manuscripts and first century writings, she realized that the church in the first century was perhaps more diverse in their vision of what Christianity was than the church is today. And so she she became, as a scholar, somewhat disillusioned because it's like this is a quest for the, the Holy Grail. This is like like an impossible thing or a myth that we're chasing, that if we could just figure out what the original Christians taught, we would know what uh, what Jesus actually said. But here is something that's interesting. Christianity spread throughout the world, and you had different communities that traced their spiritual lineage. Does everybody understand what I mean by that? They would trace their spiritual lineage to a different one of, to different ones of the apostles. So some of the main ones that you would know about, obviously European or what we might call Latin Christianity or European, European Christianity certainly traces its lineage to who? Do we have any good Catholics or former Catholics or recovering Catholics in the house? They trace their lineage to Peter, right? They trace their lineage to Peter and they focus on the verse of Jesus where he looks at Peter and he says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. But he also tells Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. So their emphasis is upon church. So God was found within the four walls of the church. He was found in the Eucharist. He was found in the baptismal font. He was found in the confessional. He was really kind of in the Western world, restricted within the confines of the church. And church authority and apostolic succession was very important. Now, there's an Oriental Orthodox Church that you've probably never heard anything about that's in India and made its way into parts of China and Japan. 
And they would trace their lineage, most of them, back to Thomas, because even uh, Catholic tradition tells us that Thomas was the apostle that went out that direction. They have a they have a very different vision of what it means to be a Christian that is more mystically centered. And one of the gospels that was found in the Nag Hammadi Library, the most famous one that was found there, is probably the Gospel of Thomas. And there's no reason for scholars, when they look at it, just scholars today, there's no reason for them, they cannot find any reason to say that the Gospel of Thomas was not written by Thomas. So therefore, in their minds at least, it should have as much legitimacy as uh, the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Matthew or whatever. Make sense? Because they can trace it back to apostolic lineage. But the Gospel of Thomas is unique because whereas in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tells the story of Jesus, in the Gospel of Thomas, it's about the teachings of Jesus. It leaves There's no miracles, there's no mention of his birth, there's no mention of his death. It's sort of like a book of Proverbs authored by Christ. Make sense? And so the Oriental Church would reflect Thomas's vision of things or how they developed Thomas's vision of things. Then there's this other stream that interests me the most. And that would be the one that would trace its lineage back to John the Apostle. John the Apostle. And this brand of Christianity, or vision of Christianity, or stream of Christianity, mostly settled in what we would call the Celtic world. Now, if you use the term Celtic today, Celtic, like, you know, the Boston... Celtics, we don't say Celtics, but you think of what? Ireland, right? But actually the Celtic world was bigger than that, but mostly consisted of what would be Ireland and today Scotland and also Wales. Now here's what's interesting. As you study church history, you discover that in Europe, the Latin version of Christianity, which is Roman Catholicism, Rome was able to subdue and get every stream within their region to submit to their doctrine, their bishops, and their vision of Christianity, except for the Celts. The Celts were the lone holdout, and it's because when they are reading John's writings, they are getting a very different vision of what... Christianity is about than Latin Christianity, which is focusing again on Peter and mostly the writings of the Apostle Paul. Are you breathing all right? But here's what's interesting. Whereas in the Latin view, God is confined within the sacraments and he's confined within the baptism font and within the church, right? Because their emphasis is church, Peter coming from the church. John's emphasis is upon life John's emphasis was upon spirituality, and John's emphasis was on creation. Because remember, his is the only gospel that begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and all things were made by him, and without him nothing was made that has been made, right? So they had a more holistic, more encompassing view of God. And what they would say is that you could study God in two different books, the book of creation and the books of the scriptures. But another thing that's interesting is that in Latin Christianity, about the 6th century, everybody say the 6th century, in the 6th century, there was a council that met, and they passed a a law. (laughs) 
they, they declared it heretical to believe in what they would call the pre-existence of the soul. In other words, what Western Christianity teaches is that you came into being when you were conceived in your mother's womb. That something happens where God, and now we're back to Ecclesiastes, where your body takes on the flesh, right? And then God does something that puts a spark of life inside you. But also something that developed in Western Christianity was they believed that everybody was born with a sin nature. Everybody was born with a nature that was contrary to God. And everyone was born separated from God. Therefore, you needed the church in order to find God. It was a convenient doctrine. (laughs) It was a convenient doctrine. And that's when they began doing infant baptisms. The church that was influenced by John never believed that. In fact, they strongly resisted that. Because they would say that every human being has the spark of God or the spirit of God that would be consistent with Ecclesiastes. Every human being has the spirit of God inside them and that spirit will return to God. But we take on flesh. And they also allow then for what you may call the pre-existence of the soul, which in the 6th century they said, no, that's heresy. So in other words, the question becomes, if we go to the writings of Scripture, what what is it, who, who are we? Did we just come into being the moment that we were conceived in our mother's womb, or did we have some kind of a pre-existence? And for 600 years throughout Christianity, they taught that there was a pre-existence of the soul. And you'll be able to see why in just a minute. But here's what's interesting. There were other books that John wrote that are reportedly written by John. Let me say it like that. Other books that are reportedly written by John the Apostle that did not make it into our Bibles. Right? But was used by the Celtic Christians to in, to uh, help uh, massage, if you will, their vision of the Christian life. All right? And here's what they say. There, there's, there's one very interesting writing where John the Apostle, after the resurrection, is crying out in grief to the Lord. This was found in the Nag Hammadi Library, which is why I brought it up. And Christ appears to him. And Christ says this about humanity. He says, humanity, and I'm going to use a modern term, has a deep abiding amnesia. They have forgotten who they are. And the way Jesus defined part of his mission, not his whole mission, but part of his mission in this particular encounter recorded reportedly by the Apostle John, the way he defined it was he said that he had come to remove that amnesia and to awaken people to help them remember who they are. So here's the issue. If you had an existence that predates being in the womb, then it's possible that you forgot that you came from God. It's possible that you forgot that you are a spirit being having a human experience, right? So in Ephesians chapter 1, like around verse 5, Paul the, Paul the Apostle says this. He says, in Christ you were chosen. You were chosen in Christ, writing to believers, you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, right? Now how could you be chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world? If you didn't exist. You had to have an existence in order to be chosen. (laughs) You had to have an existence in order to be known. Correct? 
And he says, you were chosen in Christ that you might receive the adoption to sonship. Now, here's where we get into a cultural problem, because I've adopted two boys. When we think about adoption, we think about providing a home and a family for children. But when a Jewish believer in the first century uses the term adoption and speaks of it as an adoption from God, they're talking about something very, very different. What they are talking about is a term that the Eastern Church uses called theosis. And theosis means that your divine nature is awakened to the point that it overtakes your human, your humanity. In other words, your spiritual nature, that part of you that came from God, is fanned into flame and awakened so that it permeates every part of your being. So the person who's experienced theosis is like a prism. They're like a prism through which the light of God can shine. The light of God is able to shine. So here's, to be a sun is this. It is to be that prism to where you have lost uh, everything that is preventing you from allowing the light and the nature and the power and the authority and the goodness and the love and the miracle working power and the mind of God and the wisdom of God from flowing through you. You become a prism through which that divine nature finds its expression. Expression. And according to the Celtic community, that would require an awakening. That would require a remembering of who you are and remembering that you have the spark of the divine on the inside of you. And the other thing that it does is it preserves the dignity of humanity. Remember the conquistadors that came over to America were Roman Catholic believers who believe that, uh, that we're taught to believe that everyone is born a sinner, everyone is born contrary to God, everybody's born in opposition to God. And some other teachings that we got from Augustine would be the beginnings of predestination, that God decided you were to be born a heathen versus be born baptized into the Roman Catholic Church. So if you were baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, it gave you a divine right that allowed the conquistadors to come over. And so here was their choices. We're, we want you to accept our God... <laughs> We want you to accept our God. We're going to steal your gold. We're going to steal your land. But if you'll accept our God, we'll let you stay here and be our slaves. If you don't accept our God, we're going to cut off your hands or cut off your heads or do whatever we want to by divine right. Genocide did not begin with the Nazis. It didn't begin with the Europeans that came over to America either, by the way. And if you go far back enough in history... I don't want to offend anybody, but if you go far back enough in history, what you'll probably discover is that the people who had populated the Americas came from the East and destroyed whoever had been there before them. Because genocide was just a common thing in the ancient world. (laughs) A person with a Celtic vision, if you will, Or a person who believes, no, not that you're born in opposition to God, but that everyone has a divine spark inside of them. It preserves the dignity of every human being because the mission becomes to help people remember who they are and awaken the divinity that is already inside of them, the light of Christ that is in them that gives light to everyone who comes into the world. Does that make sense to you? So that's what, so adoption then is that, is taking on that divine nature and allowing that divine nature to flow through you. So here's what Paul is really saying. He's saying you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to become the prism through which the light of Christ and the consciousness of Christ and the reality of Christ and the love of Christ and the power of Christ and the wisdom of Christ could shine forth. 
That's the goal, to awaken that divine nature, to spiritualize, if you will. If your spirit comes from God, then you are spiritualizing, if you will, your humanity. But it requires remembering who we are. I want to talk about somebody who forgot who they were, and that's Job. <laughs> Job. I'll read you something. Now, Job had it rough, so I'm not fussing with him. I mean, he had it bad, right? And here's what he says in chapter 3, verse 1, after all his troubles. He says, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job spoke and said, may the day perish on which I was born and the night in which it was said a male child is conceived. May that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and the shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, may darkness seize it. May it not rejoice among the days of the year. May it come into, may it not come into the number of months. Oh, may that night be barren. May no, may no joyful shout come into it. May those cursed who curse the day, those who are ready to arouse Leviathan, may the stars of its morning be dark. May it look for the light but have none and not see the dawning of the day because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb nor hide sorrow from my eyes. Now, I've never gone through Job's trials, but I've had a few days like that. <laughs> Just be honest. (laughs) I've had a few days that I felt like that. Why in the world am I even here? This is horrible. This is painful. This is difficult. This is trying, right? I mean, I'm not judgmental at all towards people. I don't think it's a good idea. There's a lot of things we could say about it, but I'm just not judgmental of people who have taken their own life because I figure if you're going to take your own life, you're probably at that place. Right? So you have this whole discourse that goes on throughout the book of Job that's just intense, right? I mean, emotionally intense, difficult to read stuff. Most people don't spend a lot of time meditating in the book of Job. In fact, I used to say as a young preacher, I'm not going to preach from the book of Job because Jesus told his disciples, go and preach the word and God will confirm it with signs following. So I was very picky about what I chose, what I chose to preach. Because I'm not going to preach from Job if God's confirming my word with signs following. All right. I'm just saying, me and Job have a strained relationship. But here's what's interesting. God does give Job an answer in chapter 38. He says this. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. (laughs) Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. 
Notice he says, all the sons of God. So it makes sense then that Paul the Jew can pull from scriptures and say, you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Have you ever thought about this? You have John the Apostle, back to John, in the book of Revelation. Any of you ever read the book of Revelation? Any of you ever get past the horrors of the book of Revelation to the end of the book, right? To where to where John is seeing the bride of Christ coming out of heaven, the new Jerusalem, right? And he's caught up in the spirit. John is, right? And he sees the new Jerusalem descending, and he looks at the foundations, and what does he see in the foundations of the new Jerusalem? Anybody know? In the foundations of the New Jerusalem are the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Who is John? He's one of the twelve. So what was it like for John to get caught up to see the holy city and see his name already inscribed into the foundation of the city? All right. So maybe your name's not in the foundation, but it's somewhere in that city. (laughs) And it's because your name's written in there that you have access and interest because you're a citizen of that place. But anyway, which means you had to have come from that place. Jesus said it this way. No, no man, nobody. He's not just talking about himself. He's being all inclusive. No human being. In John chapter 3, he says this, can ascend into heaven except the one who comes down from heaven. So in other words, you cannot return unless you first came there. <laughs> you cannot return unless you first came from there. Do you see it? So here's Job. Here's the interesting thing. Job is saying, oh, the day of my birth was horrible. Oh, the day of my birth was cursed. Now look at all this stuff that happened to me in this material world. Look at all this stuff that happened to me in this time-space reality in which I'm living. And because of all this terrible stuff and because of my emotional pain, may the day of my birth be cursed. May there not be any joy found in it whatsoever. And what's the first thing God does? God reminds him, Job, you didn't start on the day of your birth. You had an existence that came from somewhere else that you've forgotten about. But let me question you. Let me interrogate you. Not so that you can feel small and see how great I am, but so that I can tap the seed of your soul that has a resonance from the moment of creation that can remember when the foundations were measured, that knows where it's been laid. Oh, come on. I wish I had a Pentecostal church in here. I I wish... He's awakening his memory to who he is as a human being and to who he is as a man and saying, look, there is something inside you that completely transcends the day of your birth. And there was something laid in the plan of God that this physical reality, because here, okay, let me back up. I'm getting too excited. Let me back up. So at the highest level is spirit. God is spirit And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So the highest level of existence is spirit. Can we agree on that? And God is the source of your life. Can we agree on that? So at the highest level of existence, you have Creator. You have spirit and you have spirit creating spiritual worlds and natural worlds. Spiritual and physical Source of it all. Yes? 
at the bottom rung, if you will, of the ladder. So at the top rung of the ladder, you have spirit. At the bottom rung of the ladder, you have the physical world or the earth. And Christians for centuries understood that there were layers of spiritual reality that you had at one level the realm of the archangels, at another realm level the realm of angels. All these are lower than the highest level of God as creator, right? And then at the lowest level you have earth. And we think, what is it about earth? What is it about earth? Now, if you're a, if you're a what, what do you call those, um, a young earth person... I'll pray for you that you get enlightenment. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Please don't get offended at that. Most people today, you, you don't find Jewish people who, who have had the book a lot longer than we have arguing for six 24-hour days of creation. You won't find it. Because they understand it was a poem. <laughs> Genesis chapter 1 is not a scientific explanation of how everything happened. It is a poem. <laughs> it is meant to be read as a poem that simply states God created creation with an order and he filled it. So, if we just go with scientific consensus and common sense, and we say the earth is... The universe is billions of years old. Because you got a real problem. If you understand that stars, the nearest stars are millions of light years away and you can see their light, how is the earth only 6,000 years old? I'm just curious. Because in that case, the light wouldn't... Anyway, why am I doing this? So my point is, God was doing something in the earth that he took millions of years to do, right? So what is God up to? And here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, when I was making the physical creation, when I was making the earth, the angels were rejoicing and all the sons of God were shouting for joy. In other words, there was something about coming to the earth that was exciting. There was something about building the earth that, that caused joy and rejoicing and celebration in heaven. And Job, here you are, darkening my counsel, darkening my plans for you with words without knowledge because you're so wrapped up in your pain, you're so wrapped up in your human experience that you've totally forgotten about your spiritual experience. And so when Job has an encounter with God, God begins begins to awaken the divine seed and the divine spark and the divine flame inside of him so that he can remember who he is. Because in remembering who he is, he can transcend the events of his life and the painful things that have happened to him. Oh, I'm preaching a lot better than you're shouting. In other words, remember, Job, yes, you've gone through some painful stuff and now you're cursing the day. You're lamenting the day. You're saying, let there be no joy in the day that I came to this earth. But I want to remind you that there was something inside you that wanted to come. There was something inside you that was excited about your generation and your time period and the place where you were going to be born. I no longer believe that we have no choice in the circumstances of our lives. That we're just some kind of random happenstance because two people decided to have sex. And God had to get involved because He honored that and said, Go be fruitful and multiply. Sorry. 
My point is, is that, that the sons of God, we were there and there was joy and there was rejoicing and somehow we participated. Somehow we were excited about coming to this earth and somehow we participated in choosing the setup and the circumstances that would be involved in our lives. But our problem is we've gotten so wrapped up in this earthly realm and in this earthly dimension that we've forgotten who we are. And what has caused that, according to Scripture, more than any other thing, is fear and the fear of death. Repeatedly, 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 when people had divine encounters, the angel or the messenger of the Lord or the Lord Himself would say to them over and over again, Do not be afraid. Adam, when he hid himself from the presence of the Lord, why did he do it? Because I heard your voice and I was afraid. And so here's what we have to understand. Job is crying out why? Yes, because of his pain, but also because of his fear. And so here's the reality. Fear is the distorter. Fear is the thing that causes us to forget who we are. Fear is the thing that distorts the loving voice of our Father into the voice of condemnation and judgment. It causes us to hide our nakedness and our shame in the trees among the garden. The, the, the Garden of Eden is capitulated over and over and over again in our lives. Every time we allow fear to become the lens through which we view the world in which we live. See, if I understand that I came from God and I'm returning to God, if I understand that I came with a destiny code imprinted upon my soul, that I came and and I had a say and I had some participation in what it was that I would agree to do when I got here, and it was exciting and it was joyous, and I could understand that, yes, I'm experiencing in this earthly body, I'm experiencing this world of polarity. I'm experiencing this world of light and darkness. I'm experiencing Experiencing this world of good and evil, but it wasn't always that way. And I came here for one purpose, to be adopted by God. I came here so that I could awaken the divine flame, so that once again in me, the Word could be made flesh and could dwell among people and people could behold the glory. And you're the same way. You're the same way. It's one of the things that's different about the Thomas version of Christianity. In, in, the, in the Western version of Christianity, we are told to become a Christian. In the Thomas version of Christianity, he says, don't seek to become a Christian, seek to become a Christ. And I know that offends your Western mentality, but you have to understand that Jesus did not do one thing that you and I could not do. He did not do one thing. He did not, he did not set himself apart as the exception. He said, I am the example. Otherwise, he never would have said, the works that I do, you can do also. And greater works than these can you do. Why? Because I'm returning back to the Father. In other words, one of us made it. One of us was able to come into flesh, remember who he was, spiritualize his body to the point that they could not kill him. Spiritualize the body to his point that he says, no man takes my uh, my life from me. I lay it down and I will take it up. I will lay it down and I will raise it up again. That means that Christ broke out. If you believe that Jesus, if you believe the Apostles' Creed, that He descended into Hades, that He went into hell itself, that He went where the dead were held in captivity, where they had not yet returned to their source, and He was able by an act of His own volition, by an act of His own will, 
Not because the Father just said, okay, uh, be raised from the dead. No, that's not what He said. In John's version of Jesus, it's in John's version that He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay my life down, and if I lay my life down, I will take it up again. So He was able... Oh, Jesus... That's why the transfiguration was so important and so powerful. Because when he was transfigured, he became that full prism through which the light of God could even shine through his physical body. So that when he goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, he becomes so transparent to the light of God that his face begins to radiate like the sun and the spiritual world begins to open up around everyone who can see him. And Moses and Elijah step out and the cloud comes out and the audible voice of God said, this is my beloved son. This is the one who has manifested fully, actualized who he was before the foundation of the world. He is our, he is the firstborn from the dead, but he is our elder brother. And once he had that, he had the power of resurrection. He didn't just rise from the dead on Easter Sunday. He rose from the dead when he took his three disciples to the Mount of Transfiguration and the light of God overpowered entirely his humanity. Humanity, and he knew at that moment he had won the victory. He knew at that moment that he could lay his life down and he could take it back up again. So that he could descend into realms be, that are lower than the earthly realm. He could descend into the realms of death. He could descend into the realm of Hades. That's why I love this icon, this picture over here is Christ's descent into Hades. And the man kneeling there is Adam. And he's breaking the bars of death and breaking the bars of hell and reaching down to Adam, reaching down to the human race and delivering us from death so that we can remember who we are and we can awaken our divine nature and actualize our divine nature so that we can manifest the light and we can manifest the kingdom of heaven upon the earth and we can be who we are. My brothers and sisters, you have a destiny code that was written inside of you before the foundation of the world. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. You have a place that has been prepared for you in the mansions of the heavens and in the kingdom of our Father. And you didn't get it the moment you got saved. You got it before the foundation of the earth. And you came here to manifest who you are. Not to change who you are. To manifest who you are. The problem is we've forgotten. Mary, you're going to give birth to a son. And they will call his name Emmanuel. How will this be, Mary says, seeing I know not a man? The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. And that which will be born in you will be holy. For behold, your cousin Elizabeth, who was called barren, is now in what, six months? Second Now in her second trimester. And what does Mary do? As soon as she gets the word, she beats feet for Elizabeth's house. And the moment the Christ that had been conceived inside of her 
came into the presence of John the Baptist, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, the moment the presence of Christ came in to contact with the presence of John the Baptist, the moment that Mary met with Elizabeth, Elizabeth said, My baby leaped in my womb at the sound of your greeting. There was something in your voice was resonating. Something that you're carrying is resonating with what I'm carrying and I'm feeling it leap on the inside. And can I tell you that's a pattern that's been set forth for us. That when we come into the presence of those who have had their voice tuned to the frequency of the Christ nature that they carry inside of them, when we speak, It may be a message like this or it could just be a greeting. It could just be saying hello. But we all of us have these experiences where the baby, what we're carrying inside of us that has been predestined, what we're carrying inside of us that has been prophesied, what we're carrying inside of us that is unlocking the future and the destiny, something inside of us comes alive. Something inside of us begins to leap. Something inside of us remembers the joy that we had when the foundations of the earth were being laid and all the sons of God were shouting for joy. And how do you know when you begin to unlock your destiny code? Because there's a leap on the inside. I'm going to tell you right now, John the Baptist in his mother's womb leaped for joy because in that moment when he heard the voice of Mary who was carrying the voice of Christ, it triggered something in his memory that went back way further than six months. It went back to the beginning of the foundation of the world. And he remembered the day of his birth and why he was born and the joy for which he was about to come forth. And all of us carry that frequency buried in our consciousness, buried somewhere in our memory. It's the frequency of our divine destiny. Is our, our destiny code is there, but we've forgotten it because of the pain of our childbirth. We've forgotten it because of the pain of our journey. We've forgotten it because of the darkness that has, because fear has cast the shadow of darkness and created the shadow of doubt inside our lives. And And so the voice of condemnation and the voice of shame and the voice of guilt and the voice of anxiety resonates and triggers inside of our humanity and we forget and distort even more who we are and where we came from and who our Creator is and who our source is and where the light is and whom we serve. And sometimes the more painful our journey, the more apt we are to get stuck in fear and live under the shadow of death. David said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, much of humanity is living in the shadow of death. And that's why Luke could prophesy in Luke's gospel that when Christ comes, those who sit in the shadow of death would see a great light. The most important Christ that people will see is not the Christ of the Bible and it's not the Christ of the passion of the Christ or some movie that Hollywood has made. The most important Christ that people need to see is the Christ in you. Because guess what? If we were all up there before the foundation of the world and we all made choices about how our life was going to play out, then we were all intermingled in this thing. And maybe, I'm just speculating, but maybe even we made agreements, I'll do this for you and you do this for me. I'll be this for you and you be this for me. And all of it somehow is geared towards triggering that awakening and geared towards triggering that remembrance. Why, why was Mary 
and Elizabeth related. Because there had to be a destiny moment when the two of them would link up. Because the reality is we need communities of faith. Sure, we can discover God on creation, and sure, we can discover things out there on our own, and sure, we're free to come or not to come. But the reality is, is that we need to find our community of faith because it's only by listening to the voices of those who are in our predestined community of faith that we can begin to awaken to the destiny code that is on the inside of us. And that's why sometimes you just meet people and you just know they're, they're in your tribe. They're, they're bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. There's just something inside you that resonates with the person that you're sitting next to and something about you that resonates with the person that you're with. And if you're, but if you're not careful, fear begins to creep up. <clears throat> fear begins to divide us. Fear begins to separate us. Gossip. Evil suspicions. Your humanity might offend me. (laughs) I was having a conversation with um, one of the young ladies in college in the first service, in between services. She's taking a philosophy class and she was talking about free will. And the, the issue is, you know, philosophically, do we have any free will at all or do we not have free will? And the way she was talking about it, they kept making it an either-or reality. Either you have free will or you don't have free will. And the philosophical argument against free will is that you, you and I oftentimes make choices solely based on our experiences that we had no choice about choosing. Job certainly is not in a place to exercise his free will in chapter 3 when he's cursing the day of his birth. See it? I said it to her this way. I said, you've got to find a middle path. It's what they call a dialectic in philosophy. You have one of two extremes. You have have a thesis and an antithesis. You have to be able to synthesize it to find the middle middle pathway forward. That's why God told Joshua, stay on the path, don't go to the right or to the left, because real truth is held in tension and found in synthesis between seemingly opposing opposites. So if a person takes drugs the first time, they're making a choice, presumably. They're exercising their free will. If they're one of the 20% of humanity that has a physical attunement in this earth... (laughs) This earthen vessel, an attunement towards addiction. By the time they're on their hundredth hit, they no longer have free choice. They no longer have the choice to walk away from that substance. Which is why sometimes the way we preach repentance in the church, when we just make it, admit it or quit it, doesn't work because we don't honor the fact that people can be in real bondage. So that in reality, our spiritual path, part of our spiritual path and part of our remembering is regaining the ability to choose. It's the ability to realize that I, that, that, that I am so much greater, and I don't want to just put it in first person, I'm, I'm all of us. It's the ability for you to realize 
that you are something greater than your life story. You are something greater than your circumstances. You are something greater than your mistakes. You are something greater than your pain. You are something greater than whatever life has tried to fashion and form you into. And it's the ability to transcend life's hardships and life's pains and life's peaks and life's valleys. So that you no longer base your relationship with God on your human experience. You base it on the spiritual reality that you are beginning to remember about who you are as a son and a daughter of God, chosen in him before the foundation of the world, shouting with joy, realizing I came to this earth with purpose, and I came to this earth with destiny, and I came to this earth to to maximize my divine potential, my spiritual potential, in the midst of my human experience. And that will look different for every single one of us. The way that I manifest my divine potential is going to look very differently than the way you manifest your divine potential. But both of them or all of it is necessary for the variegated wisdom of God to be made known to principalities and powers in heavenly places, which is what the church is ultimately called to do. So when you find that thing that makes your baby leap, when you find that thing that brings joy back into your life, when you find that thing that begins to awaken your remembrance of who you are, you begin to manifest a portion of the divine that's never been manifested before. And all of creation begins to respond to that sound. All of creation begins to respond to that vibration. Maybe you have a dream in your life and you've been told you're too old or you can't do it or you messed up too bad, you're too broken, whatever. And as long as you listen to that shadow of doubt, as long as you listen to that shadow of fear, then who you are remains in the dark. But the moment you can guide your life by the frequency that is resonating in the deepest part of your soul, that is full of joy, that is full of wonder, that is full of a sense of empowerment, the moment you begin to just say, I'm going to live my life based on this and I'm not going to be tossed to and fro by every changing opinion of those around me I am going to move in this direction the moment you do that you send out a frequency that begins to vibrate so that everything around you begins to shift and conform itself to the reality of who you are So that finally, back to John's gospel, when there's a wedding feast and the neighbors 
have run out of wine, which in that culture would have brought great shame on them. Mary reminds Jesus of who he is. Because he says to her, why are you bugging me about this? My time has not yet come. But see, who you are is not bound by time. So when she tapped into the frequency of who he was, even though his time had not yet come, he could manifest who he was in the water so that the water could be respond to the frequency that he was carrying at creation. So that the water that had been created, all he had to do was release the right frequency and it transformed itself into wine. And the Bible says it was there that he manifested his glory. And you've got a glory to manifest. You just have to find the right frequency. And when you begin to vibrate at that frequency, everything that you need for provision begins to show up in your life (laughs) even before the appointed time. Close your eyes. Why don't you just ask the Holy Spirit, just, you have a relationship with God. You have a relationship with your Creator. So ask the Holy Spirit to fine-tune you right now. To fine-tune your vibration. Maybe you need to change channels. Maybe you've been listening to the wrong voices. Maybe you've been listening to the wrong input. It's time to listen to something else. So Holy Spirit, we we honor you, we worship you, we bless you. And we ask for that work inside our lives. That fine tuning, if you will, of our voice to your voice. And Lord, we thank you for divine connections. We thank you for the Marys in our life that will speak to us and awaken us. And we thank you that we will also play the part of Mary in the lives of others to awaken the dream and the destiny code inside of other people. Help us receive a fresh impartation and infusion of your life, your power, your grace, and your anointing. And most of all, Lord, I pray for every person in the sound of my voice. Help us. Remember who we are in Jesus' name. How many of you just want to worship? Just want to put your hands up and just worship God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for your healing presence, empowering us to transcend all the circumstances of our lives. Hallelujah. Tune your heart to his voice. Thank you, Lord.
Open our destiny scrolls. In Jesus' name. Amen. As always, we have people who are ready to pray for your needs if you would like that. Encourage you to just let the energy and the power of this speak to you throughout the day, throughout the week. Let there be an awakening inside. God bless you. Have a great day.